Welcome to Oak City Church, a family of learners, lovers, and givers sent. For more information, visit us online at oakcitychurch.com. Let us know if we can help you in any way. Thank you for listening. Good morning. Um, If you're new, if you're tuning in online, you're new, welcome. We're glad you're here. Um, I'm Jeff. And I've been gone for three months on sabbatical, and so the first thing uh, I would I would say is thanks. <laughs> um, I really did start. I don't know what I forgot how this works. I guess let's get my ear in there. Okay, I um uh, I did start like every day thinking I am thankful to my God and my church for the time that I had, and I wanted to make the most of it, and it was amazing. <laughs> it was so great. I'm totally ready to be back. Um, someone in their note wrote um, that she was going to pray that I wouldn't come back from sabbatical thinking, oh, if I just had one more day. And I totally didn't. The last few weeks, I was totally ready um, to come back. If someone didn't tell you that they came back after three months of not having the pressures of work and they were like super, super, like not, not just a little bit bummed, then they're lying to you or they're not human. You know what I mean? Um, but totally ready to, to, um, to be back. And, um, and I'll talk a bit about sabbatical in, in these next few sermons, and particularly today because it fits um, the passage. I'll, let me say this. Um, you guys wrote me a bunch of notes. I'm not exactly sure whose idea this was, but whoever idea it was, this is a great idea. And um, these, were, these were, I mean, I'll keep these forever, you know. Um, I felt guilty about a few things during sabbatical. Uh, one of them was just going on sabbatical because not many people get a chance to do that. And the notes were really a great way to send me into it, saying, hey, we love you. We're really glad you get the chance to do this. And it like, gave me permission um, to go. The other thing I felt guilty about was how little I thought about Oak City Church while I was on sabbatical. <laughs> I didn't worry for a second how things were going. I wondered a time or two. <laughs> and, uh, but everybody told me that that's healthy. And um, so that's good, and I, um, I think that's a testament to, to the staff, um, to John is great at what he does, the staff is great at what they do, to the elders, to um, the guys that preached while I was gone, and a, a ton of confidence in that, and never uh, wondered about it, and everybody else that's leading and doing things, and so I was really able to step back and let go for a few months, um, and the notes were, were just, you know, a huge encouragement. I read them on the day that I went on sabbatical, and I read them on the, the Sunday, last Sunday, as we were coming back from the mountains um, and getting ready to go to work on um, Monday. And so feel free to write me one of those notes anytime. Like, before I go on sabbatical again, just go ahead. Or we should probably all write notes to each other like that. So, All right, well, that's it for today, because they told me to ease back into things. No, I'm just kidding. I have too many books up here for you to buy that. Um, but at least one of you was like, really? Uh, and it's not. You guys have been in a series in the book of Acts. I have not. Uh, I did visit a lot of churches. I'll talk about that at some point. That was fun. You know what's really fun about that? It's fun to go to church and not be at work. I am really jealous in some ways of all you guys for that. Uh, but you guys have been in a series of Book of Acts, and I, I left myself the end of Acts because I didn't want to come back and have to think, oh, what should I talk about? Um, but also because I love the end of Acts, where Paul 
He's kind of done with the church planning thing, and he's on this journey to Jerusalem, but really to Rome, because he wants to preach the gospel to the most important person in the world, who is the Caesar. And he's going to get there, you know? And the end of it is like eight chapters that is, could be a movie. It's an epic saga. And so um, I'm going to go through that. The passage, like I'm going to talk a bit about sabbatical because I know people are curious. Um, I'm going to talk more about myself today than I really want to uh, for a handful of reasons, but, but it really does fit the passage. I didn't pick the passage to fit talking about sabbatical. It just, it just fits. So I'm going to read um, three scenes. I'm not going to make you stand today. I'm going to break my own rule, and, but at the end I'll say this is the word of the Lord, and you'll say thanks be to God, but I'm going to read from three scenes in the book of Acts and then talk about them. So this is Acts chapter 20. Now from Miletus, he sent, Paul sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, they said to him, so he's going to go from like Greece. He's going to go past Asia. Ephesus is in Asia. He's going to call the elders out. It's his farewell message to the elders. This is not my farewell message. I'm not going anywhere. Um, but it's his farewell message to the elders. And then he's going to go down into like Syria and Palestine and then eventually to um, Israel. He says, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. So following Jesus had been hard for Paul, but Paul hadn't shied away from any of the hard that was involved in following Jesus. Then he says, now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies me in every city. The Holy Spirit testifies me that imprisonment afflictions await me in Jerusalem. But I do not account my life of any value or as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. So following Jesus is going to get even harder, or at least as hard as it's been, and Paul's not shying away from that either. So that's the first scene. Next scene, um, they get, he gets further, closer to Jerusalem. It says, when we'd come inside of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria. We landed at Tyre, which is a city on the coast, for there the ship was to unload its cargo. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. And through the Spirit, the disciples were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. I don't even know what to make of this. Like, the Spirit has constrained him and told him in every city that he needs to go to Jerusalem and imprisonment and afflictions await. And yet, through, like, through the Spirit, his friends are telling him, hey, don't go to Jerusalem. Like, is the Spirit speaking out of both sides of his mouth? And he's not. <laughs> but it's, you, can, you can just feel the tension in this. And when our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey. And this is just a great, like, these are people. You know, this is a great scene. And they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city and kneeling down on the beach. We prayed and said what they had to know was their last farewell. And then we went on board the ship and they returned home. Um, that's a hard scene. Last scene, Acts 21. And the next day we departed and came to Caesarea. Caesarea is a city that was a big time city at the time in Israel on the coast. Uh, and we entered the house of Philip the evangelist, who was one of the seven. And so in Acts chapter 6, when they appoint 
deacons to the church. He's one of the seven deacons. So this guy's been in the story the whole time. We stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. This is an aside. I'm not going to get into it. But in the conversations about men and women in leadership and ministry and egalitarian and complementarian, this is a little piece of information um, that is really worth noting and taking into account. And while we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And Agabus is kind of a big deal prophet. Um, when it says he came down from Judea, Jerusalem is elevated. Judea is where Jerusalem is. It's the center for Israel, and it's elevated. So they're always coming down from Jerusalem um, to, every, to every place else since so they came down to the coast. And Agabus is the one that had prophesied the famine that was going to go out through Judea that, that Paul references a few times. So everybody knows who, the, who he is. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands. This also is a little bit of an aside. The belt is probably a rope. I've never been able to figure out how Agabus did this. You know what I mean? Like, I don't think I could tie my feet and hands together. Okay, never mind. But it's like, it's just a, like a thing, you know? And then he says, thus says the Holy Spirit, this is how the, and he's a little bit like Yoda. Like, this is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. And when, he, when, we, heard, when we, Luke is including himself in the we, when we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go to Jerusalem. Like, all of them. And this happens sometimes. You know what the Lord is telling you to do, and your church friends are telling you not to do it. And that's the situation he's in. And, and Paul says, what are you doing weeping and breaking my heart? For I'm ready not only to be in prison, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since, and only since he would not be persuaded, we stopped and said, let the will of the Lord be done. All right, this is the word of the Lord. Yeah, Lord, we're grateful for your word and pray that you would open our hearts to receive what you have for us today. I pray this in Jesus' name. So... I've got three things that I'm going to say. One is that following Jesus is hard. Uh, the next is that you should follow Jesus anyway. <laughs> and the third is that worship is the key to doing that. So following Jesus um, is, can, is hard. It's not hard all the time. Uh, there are times when it's, it's just amazing. There's times when it's easy. But even when it's easy, there's hard that comes along with it. Um, I thought going back, from, coming back from sabbatical, I kind of thought, this isn't a message that you give to grow a church. You know, like, you should follow Jesus because it's super hard. Uh, but if you're here, if you're tuning in, and, and you're not quite there, you're just trying to figure out who Jesus is, uh, I'm confident this is the message that God wants all of us to hear. And uh, I'll tell you a secret that the world doesn't want us to hear. Life is hard whether you're following Jesus or not following Jesus. Like, it's just hard. It's actually easier if you're following Jesus. It, maybe the hard comes in different ways. One of the biggest lies that we're fed day in and day out is that life doesn't have to be hard. Advertisers laid, lie to us all day, every day, saying, if you get my product, whatever it is, then the hard will disappear from your life. This is the thing that will change your life. And they're doing that so that they, they can get our money and so their lives won't be hard because that's what they think is going to happen, you know? And so there's a lie there. Social media is a way, has become a way for us to lie to each other and say, yeah, everything's great here. Nothing hard, nothing hard here. You know, I'm doing great. How you doing? Uh, and that's what we do with it. I'm, I'm pretty convinced that the, there's like a 
kind of an epidemic of anxiety and depression with, with young people, teenagers, young adults in our culture. And I, I think at least part of it is they've been told that life shouldn't be hard, but it turns out to be hard. And so they're thinking, wait, what am I doing wrong um, that it's hard for me? Uh, one, of the, um, one of the books that I read this summer, and I read a lot this summer, y'all, like, one of my prayers, and I think this, is, this might sound, this may be surprising, but one of my prayers was just that the, the low-level panic in the back of my mind would, <laughs> would subside enough that I could sit in a room and read a book and not have my mind going in eight million different directions. And that happened, and it was glorious. It was amazing. So one of the books that I read was this, um, and I'd highly recommend this, a book by a guy named Eugene Peterson called A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. It's just about discipleship. But he talks about how the world whispers, when it comes to discipleship, why bother? There's plenty to enjoy without involving yourself in all that following Jesus. The past is a graveyard, ignore it. The future is a holocaust, avoid it. There's no payoff for discipleship. There's no destination for pilgrimage. Get God the quick way, buy instant charisma. But other voices speak, if not more attractively, at least more truly. And he quotes a guy named Thomas Saz, who he said attempted to revive respect for what he calls the simplest and most ancient of human truths, namely that life is an arduous and tragic struggle, that what we call sanity, what we mean by not being schizophrenic, has a great deal to do with competence, earned by struggling for excellence, with compassion, hard won by confronting conflict, and with modesty and patience acquired through silence and suffering. It's going to be hard. Uh, another book that um, I read that I put in the, in the, in the weekly the other day, um, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, he quotes what I think is from AA, saying that accepting hardship is the pathway to peace, taking as Jesus did this sinful world as it is, not as I would have it. Um, I read a book called The Practice of the Presence of Christ, and the guy that edited this version of it said he once heard uh, Canon Sandy, who was a leader at Christ Church, his church, tell a class that three-quarters of the honest intellectual work of the world is nothing but sheer drudgery. Having made one's peace with that fact, one can do it. It's only the pretense that it's always interesting which makes such work impossible. And I heard that like a bunch of different ways. That like anyone's work is going to involve large, you know, periods of tedium and then, and then portions that are really exciting and that you're really engaged in. But what we're told is find a job that you love and you'll never work a day in your life, right? I think that's even possible for like 2% of the, the people, and it's probably because they're a little bit emotionally unhealthy and find their identity in their work, you know? And people just, that's just not what it is. And so there's just, there's hard involved with life. Following Jesus is its own type of hard, but when you take on the hard that comes with following Jesus, you know a few things. Uh, you know that um, there's purpose that's bigger than yourself in the things that you've taken on. That Christ, uh, he, you are sharing the sufferings of Christ and that Christ suffered to take away the sins of the world and to bring healing to the world. And the sufferings that we share with him are a part of him bringing that healing to the world. You know that you're not alone in your sufferings because Christ is with you in the midst of the sufferings that come upon you because you're following Christ and that the church, if we can be honest with, enough with each other about what's really going on, is with you too, and you're not alone, and there's a, a blessing in that. This summer was um, a lot of wrestling with God about 
hard things from the last uh, 15 years. And so the next few minutes, this is me. You've got your own hard. I'm going to be a little whiny for a minute, okay? I don't like it. It's just what's going to happen here. Um, I, early in the summer, I got my cortisol levels checked. So John has a friend that wrote a book called Leadership Durability that I read a few years ago, and I don't think I knew the guy was John's friend. He's a pastor in Tennessee. He's a fitness freak. Like, he was in great shape, and he burned out. Like, burned out, finished a message on Sunday, couldn't get out of bed on Monday, Tuesday, or Wednesday, and found himself in fits of uncontrollably crying, burned out. Went to the doctor. Doctor tested his cortisol levels. He said, you've blown out your adrenal glands, and you just need some time on the bench. And um, when I read the book, I thought, ooh, I, I want to test my um, cortisol levels. Now, cortisol is your fight-or-flight response hormone. And so when you get in stressful situations, your body produces cortisol and helps you manage your response to that. I just felt like I'm never burned out the way this guy did, but I'm not responding to the stress the way that I used to. And I actually went to a doctor then. Right after I read the book, I had a doctor's appointment, and I'm like, I'd like to get my cortisol levels checked. He's like, you don't need that. I'm like, okay. <laughs> uh, and so on sabbatical, I thought I really want to try to figure that out. And, um, and Luke helped me actually find a thing online it's a company called Thorn with an E. They send, you know, a box that's got four vials that you have to fill with saliva throughout the day, which is harder than it sounds. And then you send them back to them, and they give you, you know, your results. And there's a range that your cortisol is supposed to be throughout the day. And my cortisol levels were below the acceptable range at every point during the day. They weren't super far below the range, but there's really not much below the range um, in the, when you look at the graph. And there's another hormone they mentioned. The range is three to nine and mine was one. And I thought, this is six weeks into sabbatical. Honestly, I thought, oh, good. I'm not crazy. Like, I'm not responding the way um, that I used to. And talk to Luke, and he's like, uh, yeah, you're just, you're just an exhausted pastor, you know, an exhausted uh, church leader. The, the quintessential sabbatical passage in Scripture really is from 1 Kings, I think it's 19. It's Elijah, the prophet Elijah. He's gone through this season of ministry where he had this victory with the prophets of Baal, and it's amazing, and then Jezebel chases him down and tries to kill him, and it's horrible, and he ends up in the desert under a broom tree, and he's like, God, just kill me. And God's like, hey, you look tired. Here's a snack. Take a nap. We'll talk later. And I feel like my sabbatical took that track, and I, we, we got done on Sunday. On Wednesday, we flew to Portugal. Y'all. Portugal is amazing. <laughs> like the Quins, uh, if you have been here for a while, the Quins moved to Portugal, and they're amazing. Their church was fantastic. Um, it seemed, I mean, life is life, and so there are things that are hard. But the, like the second to last night we were there, we're at, we're at this, we're going out to dinner, and we're having a few drinks beforehand, and we're at this place that's like, uh, we're sitting at a table that's five feet from a cliff that goes into the Atlantic and I'm sitting there like, this is not reality. Like, this isn't. And they're like, yeah, we probably go here once in a week. And I'm, I thought, I hate you. Like, you know, like, it's just, it was amazing. Um, it was fantastic. And, uh, and then I went home to Wisconsin and checked into a monastery for, for um, three days. That was great. But I was trying to get it all to wind down and, like, everything to kind of slow down. And it was difficult. Like, it didn't happen then. Really, about... Four weeks ago, I was taking my son out to Asheville to check into a Young Life camp to, to volunteer there for a few weeks. 
I got a tiny house for a few days, hiked a lot, and, and God and I talked um, about a, a lot of things. And so I'm just going to, again, tell you a little bit. I'm going to whine a little bit. I'm going to just tell you a little bit about what's hard. Uh, preaching is, is um, like the week-to-week of preaching is hard. I've used these quotes before, I, um, but I keep them on my wall in my office for a reason. As one pastor said, you don't ever finish preparing a sermon. You just abandon working on it anymore, trusting that what is heard is better than what's said. And so every Friday, or maybe if I'm lucky, Thursday, um, I just, I, I close it, I put it away, and I, like, it feels like I'm taking the loss, you know, because it's never, ever good enough. Uh, and there's something to that. Someone said to me years ago, <laughs> she's so innocent, she's like, it's like you have a big project due every week. I'm like... Oh, no, you know, <laughs> and everybody has projects too. you know, these are just my projects. And um, yesterday I was driving around trying to Sabbath. This was a revelation. I'm like, I can't in the quiet moments. What comes into my mind is portions of the sermon that I find myself rehearsing and I just can't stop. Uh, I've got there are other quotes on this. Augustine said my preaching almost always displeases me for I'm eager after something better. Spurgeon who's like the guy, said it's a long time since I preached a sermon that I was satisfied with. I scarcely recollect recollect ever having um, done so. I was at other churches listening to to guys preach, and when they would use good good illustrations, it was great going to other churches. When they would use good illustrations, I was like, oh, I wonder where that came from, because the illustrations always come out of the blue, and you can't control them, and you have to depend on the Lord for them, and it's stressful, you know? And yet, like in the middle of that, God brought Romans 10 to me. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him in whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it's written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news and the blessing of the calling, you know? But it was just some wrestling. Um, Part of what's hard about pastoring, this is the thing that I wrestled the most with saying today and got a little bit of conflicting advice, but I'm, well, is that it, someone said to me years ago, when you pastor a church, the relationships you have with your, your folks in church are all dual relationships, meaning you're their friend, but you're their pastor. And there's a level of stress associated with that. So we've crafted a culture as a church to not have so much distance between the pastor and the congregation, you know, because there's not. Because all our work is sacred. And so my work is sacred work, but the Bible says your work is sacred work too. And that's theology, and I've preached that before. And everybody has a part to play in the body of Christ. And no, you know, parts are more important than other parts. And so we've done that. And done that in part because it's true, um, and in part because I want to have friends in my church. Like I, and, and my 85% of my like, really good friends in life are here, you know. But I'm your pastor, and I lead your church. And so when we have conversations, what tends to happen in a pastor's mind is you're like, okay, are we, I think we're just having a friend conversation here. But then something will be said, I'm like, ooh, I think I should probably put my pastor hat on and push a little bit on this thing. So I have to shift, because you might think that, are we just having a friend conversation or is he going to pastor me up, you know? Um, But then there's stuff that you might be concerned about with what's going on at church. And so then you want to talk to me about that. And then I'm shifting into a different gear. And there is a low level, in some cases, high level, most of the time, low level, Stress involved with that. And so we didn't talk for three months. And I kind of hated that, but it was kind of relaxing. And I hate, hate saying that. But it's the nature 
uh, of the role. And it's not just me. There's an art, a, a podcast I listened to this spring. I may have heard this for years, but the spring that the guy was talking about the things that create insecurity in pastors. This is a national guy. He's written the books. He said the number one thing is, hey, pastor, can we talk? Because your mind goes, and especially when your mind isn't like cortisol thing, is like the fight or flight, oh, this is bad, you know? It's just, and you have that in some area of your life. And so, and, but this is, again, talking about me for a second. Um, I heard it in a podcast Monday when I came back, so I checked out some ministry podcasts, and the guy in our cohort wrote an article, he's a PCA guy, that went out to like the PCA, whatever their journal is, to everybody, I think. Um, said, why your pastor needs pastor friends. And he, like, got into this. So this is one of those things, sometimes I say things like the hugging thing, you guys make fun of me about that. It's okay, you can do that. The, like, I'm kind of lean introverted, so if, after, like, 30 or 45 minutes when people are still in the lobby, that's the best thing ever, but I'm going to sneak out the back door because I'm a little tired. You may find me for that, it's fine. Don't make fun of me for this. Because, like, it's, it's just, and don't avoid it. Please, God, please don't avoid me. But just know. And you can manage that dynamic a little bit. I'll tell people, hey, let's go to lunch. We just haven't talked for a while. No agenda. I'll say it that way. And so, like, but if you have an agenda, just give me a heads up. Like, a no big deal agenda or a big deal agenda. Just a helpful thing. But, the, like, me and God talked about that a bit. Um, this week, the, maybe the thing that I didn't expect coming back was just this is a Moving to the next thing, like, this is still a bottom line to a church. It's a business. It's a family business. And so, like, John said, offerings have been down a little bit this summer, which it's summer, so offerings are down. But, like, then I woke up at 4.30, and my mind, like, started thinking, I wonder how much offerings have been down, you know? <laughs> and just is um, what it is. I would have been hor- horrible with manna in the desert. I, I'd, I'd, like, I would have been bad in that time. I would have been like, I know... He gave it to us yesterday and the day before that and, like, last week and all of last month. But, like, do you really think he's going to do it tomorrow? This, I don't know if this is a confession or not. I bought some lottery tickets. I would have been so generous. I would barely have kept any of that billion dollars. But I just don't want to trust God with my money anymore. That's a confession. You know? Me and God had that out too. And then there's a, like, here, like, Paul at one point says, not to mention all the burdens of the church. And, and this is a burden that is a huge, huge, huge blessing. So I'll stand at the back of the church some days in worship, and I'll just, I'll look at you guys and think about your stories, because I know where all the bodies are buried. Like, I know a lot about what you've been through. And honestly, some Sundays I'll, like, cry because I'm, I'm broken for you or I'm so happy for you and what God's brought you through. And where you are. And like, but those, the, we carry each other's burdens. And we do that well as a church. The pastor carries all of them. And this pastor tends to think, if I had pastored you better, you wouldn't have that burden. Like, we could have avoided it, you know. 
And that's, maybe that's unhealthy, but maybe it's healthy. I don't know. Um, when, well, yeah, I thought this week about the Borgans and um, as a family that was here early and they moved back home to Connecticut and they had a three-year-old daughter when they left who a few years later got brain cancer and passed away. And at a distance, I walked through them a little bit with that, but when she passed, they called me and asked me to come up and do the funeral. And I can still, those songs from the funeral come up, and I'm back there, and the song after the message was come to the altar, and I can still see Paul and Melanie with their arms raised, worshiping God while they're burying their daughter. I don't know what word to use to describe being in those places with you guys other than it's just sacred. Those are sacred spots that the pastor gets invited into that is an honor, um, but a weight, you know. Sabbatical gave me space to like think through all those things and more over 15 years. Um, and and God comes back to Elijah, wakes him up from the nap. And there's a thing about an earthquake and a fire and a wind and then a still small voice. You know, I didn't really have that so much. But God asks him the question, what are you doing here, Elijah? Man, for a 51-year-old male, that's a midlife crisis waiting to happen right there, you know. And so we went at that question from every angle. Like, what are you doing here? Is this where God wanted you to be? Is this where you thought you'd be? Is this where you want to be? How do you feel about being here? Where are you going to go next? Like those types of things. And um, there's a guy I quoted a few years ago that said, life is a series of unlamented losses. He's, I listened to him again this summer. He said, every loss, whether it be a pen or a person, requires an appropriate amount of time to like grieve it. In space, but we just don't have the time and space to do it. And it gave me time and space to think back over 15 years into some really, really hard things that have really hurt. And and at one point to come to, to God, I have this written out somewhere, apologizing as I came to him and saying, God, I'm I'm bitter about some stuff. And I'm not bitter with people, I'm bitter with you. And I know a third of the psalms are lament psalms, and so this is in the Bible so we can do this, but, like, I still don't want to do it. And, um, man, that was, I think that's when the panic subsided. And if I got one thing out of sabbatical this summer, it was a renewed closeness to the Lord. And man, I, I will do anything not to give that up. There's a quote I use a lot from Blaise Pascal. The sole cause of man's unhappiness is his inability to sit quietly alone in his room. I might add, with the Lord. And I totally got there. And it's pretty amazing. Uh, and I'm grateful. I don't know what's hard for you. You have your own heart. You know, it may be that you're single in a hyper-sexualized culture trying to stay faithful to what God says about sexuality, and I can't imagine how hard that is right now. It may be that you're just trying to stand your ground and be faithful to the things that you believe and you're convicted of out of Scripture, but like that's hard right now. Next week, I'm going to talk about Paul in front of Agrippa and speaking the truth to power, 
in an age where power is defining and power being like the loudest voice is defining truth. And so how do we navigate that? Um, I mentioned this before. How many people have said they're scared they're going to get fired over, you know, using the wrong pronouns? It's just a different age. Your difficult could be revolving around being married or staying married, you know, because marriage is hard. Can I get an amen? I know you're going to do that quietly because you're probably sitting next to the person you're married to. So I get it. I totally get it. Because you're supposed to marry your soulmate and never have any problems. The world tells some lies, y'all. You are a walking, breathing problem, and marriage is meant in part to highlight the problems you are causing. So you have to deal with them by bringing them to Jesus in the context of a faithful relationship with someone who won't give up on you, in part because they realize they are also a problem that Jesus needs to fix. Can I get an amen to that? It could be uh, that the hard for you is you're just exhausted. Now, don't get a sabbatical, Jeff. I get it. I understand it. Um, we, we talked about this again in staff meeting. We, as a church, and it's pretty much always been like this for us, that a third of the people that are in the room, on a, in the building on a Sunday, are children that we need children's ministers for, because, like children, you know, people to lead, because we got a bunch of young families, and kids are exhausting, you know? Part of, like, sabbatical is realizing I'll probably never get in that place again because my kids are older, and so I don't have to deal with all of what comes. I love them. Sorry, Johnny. He's in the back waving at me. Uh, Michael, Michael, Matthew took Michael to Roanoke, and he's got a trip, and then he's going back to college, and is great. He is doing so great. It's been so much fun having him home this summer. If he left his dishes on the counter or in the sink for me to deal with one more time, I was going to tell him to find someplace else to sleep that night. You know what I mean? Like, it's just, and so you just may be exhausted for whatever reason. But whatever, you're, whatever the hard is, um, God gets that. You should follow Jesus anyway. Paul had every opportunity, the, two, the next two points take a lot less time than the first one. Paul had every opportunity to justify not following Jesus. Right? He could ignore that the sense the Holy, the Holy Spirit is calling him to the, the hard that's in Jerusalem because the, the work in Greece and Asia was thriving and they're planting churches and there's adversity, but they're seeing like people come to the Lord and lives changed. And so he could have not just disobeyed it as like delayed it. You know, I'll do that as soon as this stops working so well. Um, he had his best friends, Luke, telling him, yeah, you shouldn't go, man. I can't imagine what those conversations are like. And again, you have times when you know God's calling you to do something hard, and the people around you are like, no, you don't need to do that. Even people that know better. And Paul said, what are you doing weeping and breaking my heart? I'm ready to go. Uh, this reminded me of the Old Testament, um, King David at En Gedi, before he's King David. So in that story, David, Saul is king. But like the Lord said, we need a new king. And so they find David and Samuel anoints David as king, but he can't be king yet. And so he knows he's going to be king and Saul figures out he's going to be king. And so Saul like is just not healthy and he is devolving and people are suffering for it. And he tries to kill David and David ends up in these caves at En Gedi, which is a remote part of Israel. And in the providence of the Lord, Saul has to go number two and he goes into the cave 
And like he's there, and it's the same cave where David and his guys are hiding. And so all the guys are like, David, surely this is the Lord giving him to you. Like this is the Lord saying, get rid of him. Everybody's suffering because of him. Take his life. And, and so David like, has every reason to believe them. These guys have put their lives on hold. They're risking their lives for him, and he's not doing the obvious thing that they're telling him to do. I can't imagine the tension in that scene. And what he does is like snips a corner of his robe and comes back, and they're like, oh, why'd you wimp out on that? And he says, I will not raise my hand against the Lord's anointed. I'm not going against God's plan no matter how hard it is for me and how the hard that I'm putting on you. That's where Paul is, and he takes it, and he follows him anyway. Uh, and in, in Paul's mind, his mission is to, to preach the gospel of grace to the world, to communicate the gospel of grace to the world, and like, this is part of that plan. And so he's going to do it because it's worth it. He's going to do it uh, because Jesus took the heart. He suffered to take care of the sins of the world. And that sacrifice was complete, but there's still suffering in the world. And us taking on the heart of following Jesus does, like in God's plan, help alleviate suffering in the world when we show Jesus. And we, we show the world Jesus. We show them like there's more to it than this. And we'll see this next week. In part, they can trust that because we're willing to give up the things of the world and take on the heart that comes with following Jesus because we're so convinced that he's real. And I'll say this, too, about follow Jesus anyway, because the things that we're doing don't work. Um, I get this magazine every week called The Week, a little magazine, and um, they have a people page every week. And this came, this is, I think it's dated May 14th. This is early in sabbatical. But this page, just the, it was like four or five stories that were like, it's not working. So who knows who Henry Winkler is? Okay. He was the Fonz. Hey. The Happy Days. Uh, I grew up with that show. It was set in Milwaukee. Um, but the article is about how he grew up dyslexic. It was really hard for him. He got that role, but then he was stuck in that role for 35 years, and no one would cast him as anything else. I guess he won an Emmy for something else recently, but he's 76. Like, most of his life, he's like, I wish I could just get something different. And he says, being the Fonz was amazing, but his insecurities hasn't, hadn't changed. He said, I was still short. Okay, he was 5'6", you know, is. I'm 5'6 and 3 quarters. So it, I get it a little bit, you know. I, I couldn't spell. I still had trouble reading. Being a star didn't fix any of that. We think there's something that's enough. There was a, uh, they have an anecdote about um, Naomi Judd, who was getting inducted into the Country Music Hall of Fame and a few days before took her own life. Um, and... All you can get in the world isn't going to take away some mental health stuff. You know what I mean? Like, and what her daughters are going through now because of that. They had a thing on Danica Patrick. This is the thing I, re I wrestled with second most this morning. Uh, she, Danica Patrick, we know who's saying it. She was the race car driver, most successful female race car driver um, ever. I'm going to quote her. She said in 2014, she got, she got implants because, quote, I didn't have boobs and wanted to have it all. I'm not sure I can say that word in church, but I just did. And it's okay. Because it, I've never been a woman, which, again, 10 years ago would be, mean a different thing than it does now, you know? But, like, it's, 
it's just the reality of our world and what we're in. And she said, I wanted to have it all. And that was all. That's what she thought was the thing that would change her life when she's famous. She has all the money she could ever spend. And then it made her sick in a bunch of different ways. And so she had them removed. And she said she could breathe and had so much energy after she, it didn't work. The last one was um, Jason Sudeikis, Ted Lasso. Anybody watch Ted Lasso? So I didn't know who he was until Ted Lasso, but like that's, that was a rocket ship for his career. But his, wife, but his personal life, his wife was leaving him at the same time. And he, earlier this year, there were some papers as, a, as part of their divorce that had to be served to her. And his representative served the papers to her while she was talking to 4,000 people at Caesar's Palace as part of like some conference. She's speaking to 4,000 people. Someone walks up on stage. She's like, uh, can I help you? It's like papers related to her divorce. So either his representatives made a massive mistake and he has to deal with the fallout, or he's so bitter about everything that he decided that was a good idea. He has everything that we think would fix our problems. Like, it doesn't work. There is um, this guy... Um, said in part of this book, what's hard isn't following Jesus, what's hard is following myself. Doing my life in my way, therein lies the path to exhaustion. And so my last thing, worship is the key to following Jesus. In this first scene, Paul says, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, don't know what's going to happen except the Holy Spirit's telling me that it's going to be bad. But I do not account my life of any value nor is precious to myself. I don't account my life of any value, nor is precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. What happens when we worship in whatever form is we're taking our eyes off of ourselves and putting them on Jesus and realizing just how big he is and putting everything about ourselves back into perspective. And we can account our life as you know, of any value. He obviously accounts as a value or he wouldn't send his son Jesus to the cross. We are valuable. But he's saying, for me, what's valuable is him and what he wants for me and not me and what I want for me. This might be the most countercultural thing you could say um, today or maybe in any day, you know, in an individualistic get yours now, if you can dream it, do it culture. Uh, I don't account my life of any value or as precious to myself forces you to make a decision about who's right and who's wrong and which way you're going to go. And part of the summer in that time in the mountains was like re-surrendering some things that like I'd surrendered, but I guess I didn't, you don't quite realize, that's probably going back 25 years, what you're surrendering. So when you go into ministry and when you become a Christian, you, you surrender your finances to the Lord. You trust God with your finances. When you I think in a, in a different way, when you go into ministry, you surrender your standard of living to the Lord. Um, and, and the older you get, the hard, like, there's some tension in that. And like, there's a re-surrendering of that. You surrender your reputation to the Lord. Because um, a lot of things the world seems like you're not going to get when you're in ministry. Like you're going to get other things. And uh, I surrendered that to the Lord. And and like surrendering dreams to the Lord. Oak City Church in so many ways has been a dream come true um, for me. The privilege of pastoring people that like preaching every week 
means me and Jesus spend a lot of time, and I really love the Bible, and I love spending time in it and discovering stuff, you know, and, and the, the people listen to you is crazy and all that, all that. And, and the friendships that, that made with people over 15 years, um, like just some of the best people I ever know in life I've known because of Oak City Church. It's not been all my dreams come true. There have been hard things that have happened, and there's like a resurrendering of dreams. And in that, like God dealt with my ego in a lot of ways this summer. And this line, I've accounted my, like, like I realize I have accounted my life as of more value than is useful. <laughs> and so when Paul says, I do not account my life of any value or is precious to myself, like that is the key to following Jesus through the hard. And that's where he brings you and you, the decision you have to make. Like John the Baptist was famous, and Jesus came on the scene, and John the Baptist is like, listen, I must decrease, he must increase, and all of us have to be saying that to ourselves. I'll finish with these um, last few things. This is, again, Eugene Peterson, and it's a section, one of the Psalms where there's a line in this Psalm about Israel, um, and it's just like a baby content in its mother's arms, my soul is a baby content. And so he talks about a baby being weaned um, from its mother. He says, uh, the Christian is not like an infant crying loudly for his mother's breast, but like a weaned child that quietly rests by his mother's side, happy in being with her. No desire now comes between him and his God, for he is sure that God knows what he needs before he asks him. And just as the child gradually breaks off the habit of regarding his mother only as a means of satisfying his own desires and learns to love her for her own sake, so the worshiper, after a struggle, has reached an attitude of mind, maybe after several struggles, in which he desires God for himself and not as a means of fulfillment of his own wishes. His life center of gravity has shifted. He, rests, he now rests no longer in himself but in God. The transition from a sucking infant to a weaned child, from a squalling baby to a quiet son or daughter is not smooth. It's stormy and noisy. It's no easy thing to quiet yourself. Sooner may we calm the sea or rule the wind or tame a tiger than quiet ourselves. It's a pitched battle. The baby is denied expected comforts and flies into rages or sinks into sulks. There are sobs and struggles. The infant is facing the first great sorrow and it is sore distressed. But, and here he's quoting Spurgeon, to the weaned child... His mother is his comfort, though she has denied him comfort. It is a blessed mark of growth out of spiritual infancy when we can forego the joys which once appeared to be essential and can find our solace in him who denies them to us. Oh, man, would that we find that peace with the Lord and that trust in the Lord. Jesus said to his disciples, at the end, I've, seen, I've said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world, you're going to have tribulation. It's going to be hard, but take heart. I've overcome the world. Like have peace in the midst of that. And he said, come to me all who weary and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Uh, so I'm going to ask you to close your eyes for a second and, um, and bow your heads and the band can come back up and we're going to take communion in a minute. That line, my yoke is easy and my burden and light is light. This week, 
um, the things I probably didn't expect as I pick burdens back up is realizing how much I've carried those things on my own without the help of the Lord. And he didn't say the burdens are going to go away. A yoke is what they'd put on oxen. It means he's going to carry them with you. And so I don't know what hard the Holy Spirit has brought to your mind this morning. That you were carrying alone or that you were like just using escapes to avoid. But I would um, implore you to bring those things to him. To not avoid the trouble, but to face the trouble. To know that there's purpose to it. Maybe that you understand or maybe that you don't and one day will or maybe that you, you won't until we're on the other side. That you're not alone in it. That we could be a church where you'd never feel like you have to be alone in it. But that there's some shame in admitting it. And that we would learn what it means that his yoke is easy and his burden is light because we're appropriately letting him carry the part of our burdens that we're never meant to carry. And if you're here and you've never made a decision to surrender to Jesus, you're just trying to figure out who he is, I get that. Um, I'd love to talk to you about that. But if you don't need to talk anymore and you know you're just standing there and you need to surrender, then, man, let this be the morning that you give your life to him. You're not going to avoid the hard. Don't believe the lies of the world. Believe Jesus. He's overcome the world. And he offers us so much more and such a fullness in the midst of the hard and a peace in the midst of the hard and when you find that it's like nothing else and so admit your need for him admit your need for him to, to take the consequences of your sins which you couldn't take for yourselves um, admit your belief even if it's not complete even if there's still doubts your belief and who he is and what he's done and place your hope in the future that is the promise of an empty tomb because he has conquered sin and he's conquered death. And one day things will be the way that we know things are supposed to be. Father, thank you for these words. Thank you for Paul that he didn't bail in the midst of that, but he followed you to the end, Lord. And you used him so much and we're here in part because of him. Would we trust you the way that you've offered us to be able to trust you and find rest in you? I pray this in Jesus' name.